It seems planes never leave the skies over rebel-held northwest Syria. My husband was told he'd have to join the army, so I was forced to flee to Lebanon. I'd also just given birth. I was worried about my child, my family-in-law, about everyone. Activists blame a barrel bombing by government forces. Lebanon is home to over a million refugees who fled the war in Syria. Life is far from easy for them. For many, it's a hand-to-mouth existence with money coming from aid or sporadic casual work. And what about childhood statelessness in this context of forced migration? How best to tackle it? In this edition of the What's Best for Children's Nationality podcast, we look at how the Norwegian Refugee Council is using information sharing, legal counselling and assistance. Later in the podcast, we'll also hear how a similar approach is being used in Malaysia. But first, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. We'll pay particular attention to the importance of birth registration. This official recording of a child's birth by a state's authorities is a legal recognition of existence, proof of when, where and to which parents the child is born. Without this, a child may struggle to be recognised as a national, as they can't establish their link to a parent who is a national. So, in a context of fleeing conflict, birth registration is key when it comes to tackling childhood statelessness. My name's Martin Clutterbuck. I'm the uh, regional advisor for the legal aid program in the Middle East for the Norwegian Refugee Council. So how big is the problem of childhood statelessness under the Syrian refugee population in Lebanon? It's, it's really hard to put a finger on the numbers. Um, there's estimated to be about 200,000 Syrian children born in Lebanon. Um, our data suggests that most of them, up to 80% of them, haven't got certificates. Um, so, so that's a, it's a massive potential problem, you know. For children born in a situation of displacement, as with Syrian refugee families, birth registration can be critical to ensuring their connection to their home country is recognised and that their link to citizenship through their parents is documented. If that link can't be established, they may not be recognised as nationals and may not be able to return to Syria even when it becomes safe to do so. Um, it's a complicated process in Lebanon to get up to the full issuance of the certificate. Um, but, you know, there's also other cases where there's um, uh, child marriages. There's the need to have a marriage certificate before you can register a child. If you've lost your marriage certificate, if it's missing, um, it's really, really hard to get your children registered in Lebanon. And what are the obstacles people face in trying to get documentation? Well, there's so many issues and they're a lot related to um, complicated procedures, um, missing documentation, uh, fathers or husbands often who, who've gone missing in the war. There's no death certificate, there's no proof of death. It's, it's, uh, often there's no proof of marriage. A lot of marriages take place in Syria informally, not registered. Uh, in the course of a conflict, it's then really hard to prove to authorities that, um, you know, your parents were registered and, uh, you know, in, in, in Syria and Lebanon, in many countries in the, in the region, um, nationality comes for, or in Syria, nationality comes from the father. So the existence of the father, the whereabouts of the father, um, the identity of the father, the nationality of the father is really important. Um, so that presents a massive problem for, for women, for widows particularly as well. Under Syrian law, a child born outside the country can only obtain Syrian nationality through the link to a Syrian father. 
Syrian women cannot pass on their nationality to children born outside the country. This makes access to birth registration, but also marriage registration, especially important to avoiding cases of statelessness. This is Khaloud Daoud Aga. She's the woman we heard from at the beginning of the podcast. Her story is typical for many who fled Syria. I used to live in Syria in Homs, she says, and I was five months pregnant, and the house I lived in was bombed. My father-in-law went missing. We looked for him, but couldn't find him, and we lost hope. We fled to an area called Mahim, and I gave birth there. But 20 days after giving birth, Mahim got bombed too, and I lost hope of staying there. We looked for my father-in-law again but couldn't find him. I was worried about my child, my family, about everyone. We were all so young and it was so very dangerous. Once in Lebanon, Syrian refugees are faced with a host of challenges. So how high a priority is making sure children have documentation proving their status? Well, I think, um, you know, there's all sorts of competing needs for for food, for shelter, for jobs, for uh, health services. But, I mean, for a lot of those, you need to have a document to access those services. So I I think it is pretty high on the list. You know, anyone who has a a school-aged child really needs to have a birth certificate. Anyone who wants to take their child to a doctor or to get um, uh, humanitarian assistance often needs to have some sort of proof of of, of legal identity for for the child. So it's, it's a high priority. Khaloud has been in Lebanon since 2013. She now has four children. Her oldest daughter, Leila, was born in Syria. I was worried about my children not being registered, she says. First of all, because of Leila and her education. But for my other children, too. God forbid they would need health care and that I wouldn't be able to get them treatment. They, the authorities, might even think that I'd kidnapped the children, that they were not my own. I didn't have anything that proved they were my children. The paper I had from the hospital was useless if their birth wasn't properly registered here. If I wanted to take them to the hospital, I couldn't. If I wanted to go from one area to another, I wouldn't be able to. I was afraid, very afraid, something would happen to them. So how does the Norwegian Refugee Council help Syrian refugees, and especially those with children at risk of statelessness? So we work on different levels. We basically um, have good networks with the, with refugees. So we, we provide a lot of information about what the procedures are, basically. And we hope that people can just help themselves. You know, once they have a bit of basic information about the, the four-stage process, um, I mean, basically the four-stage process is, one, the birth notification from the hospital or the midwife, two, a stamp from the Mukhtar, the local, local official, three, registry with the civil registry office, and four, um, registry with the foreigner's registry. They're the four steps to get the certificate, basically. And then there's a requirement to register with the Syrian authorities as well. Um, so just telling people what the um, requirements are, doing outreach because people aren't able to move often so much, um, and then individual uh, one-on-one counselling for particular issues, if someone really can't move through the system, we'll take the case on. We'll take them through the courts. If you don't manage to register your child before they turn one, you have to go to court. One of Khaloud's biggest fears was that her children would be taken from her. 
I was afraid something would happen on the road, she says, and that they would take them away from me, as I didn't have any identification documents. It worried me a lot. I worried about them. I have four children. God bless them. But I had nothing to prove their existence. These feelings were really scary. And with Leila, her oldest daughter, at school age, that was something else that was also undermined by the lack of papers. When Leila saw her friends go to school, I registered her, she says, but after a month she had to leave because she didn't have an individual paper. She started crying when she left school, asking, why are all my friends at school and not me? I was devastated. I didn't have anything to prove my marriage, to be able to prove the existence of my children. It was a huge hassle to register Leila and get her papers as they asked for at school. So just how important is legal documentation, especially in the context of fleeing war, where children of refugees are at a much higher risk of becoming stateless? Well, it's really important. I mean, it's obviously fu fundamentally important for the child and for the parents. Um, and the most difficult situations are ones where the parents feel that they can't even confirm the, the existence or the identity of their child. But it's important for um, it's important for the host government to, to have people in the country registered, um, and it's important for the for the country of nationality to you know who its nationals are, where they are, you know, not not where they are, but that they that they um, um, are, are registered. Um, and of course, you know, having a, a legal identity document, a birth certificate, it opens up all the rights that you can have in the world. And you only need it once in your life, really, and then you're set for the rest of your life. You can go to school, you can get healthcare, you can get humanitarian services, you can get a passport, you can travel around. So it's really a fairly small um, investment of, of time and money for what, what you get out of that, that single document. To help Kalud, a lawyer working with the NRC's Information Counselling and Legal Assistance Programme, took her through the process of first registering her marriage. This then paved the way to register her children. Because I have proof they are registered, they are my children, she says. I can come and go as I want, I can enrol them in school and I can take them to a hospital because I have proof they are registered. Thank God, this is such a relief. Life is still far from easy for Kalud and her family. They live in a dusty apartment in the Bekaa Valley, which they share with five other families. And they keep themselves to themselves, as not everyone is welcoming towards Syrian refugees. But the family now has the official documents required, and their right to access other essential rights is firmly in their grasp. So why does the NRC take this legal approach of providing information and legal counselling and assistance? We find it, it just works. Um, you know, I mean, of course, we'd like to just give information so people can help themselves, but we know that the procedures are complicated. They're costly, they're, there's movement issues. So we have to combine that that with a, a couple of different approaches. And then we have people who are, who are just stuck. You know, there's nothing we can do. Um, and when you can present some evidence about a particular obstacle to the authority, sometimes they're, they're willing to adjust their procedures, issue an amnesty or a concession, you know, so that can be a powerful tool to, to get more people uh, registered. And what about the challenges faced in taking this approach? There's extremely complicated cases as well where the, um, you know, the, the husbands have passed away, there's child marriages, there's all sorts of situations where it's really hard to get the, 
the uh, documents. And often a national policy doesn't always translate down to the local levels. Sometimes the municipalities have a different, or the police stations have a different sort of approach to it, uh, which needs people to come in and say, well, actually, this is a little bit different from what's done in other parts of the country. Um, so, yeah, people need help, basically. <laughs> there are a lot of really sad and challenging cases. Which ones really stick with Martin? I, th- I think some of the saddest cases, perhaps, are the child marriage cases where you have someone who's a child in front of you, 15, 16 years old, who's already married and who already has a child. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, and, and they're coming to you because they want to get a birth certificate for their child. They're, not, they're still a child themselves, so you sort of have two children in front of you. And you can sort of, um, if, especially if you have children yourself, it's... Uh, it's you know, you can see this this person's life has already they've aged before they've even finished their childhood yet. You know, um, it's not fair. They're they're some of the toughest cases, I think. The individual approach is core to the NRC's strategy of tackling childhood statelessness. At the same time, the organisation is also able to zoom out and try and influence policy by bundling data in a bid to establish new best practices and legal precedent. I guess we do have a lot of um, of, of contact with beneficiaries. Um, I think last year the program was able to give information to about 275,000 uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So that's a lot of data. Um, so then we, we look at the trends and the obstacles. So we can tell, for example, that approximately 98%, almost 100% of parents are able to get birth notifications from the hospitals or from midwives. That's a great first step. But that figure goes down to about 40% of people who are able to get the, um, the certificates registered with the civil registry office. That's a big drop. That's 50, 58% um, who aren't able to take that next step. Um, and then that figure drops down to even 21% of people who can uh, have the children registered with the foreigners registry. So we're able to, we really look at what, what are the obstacles between stages one and two and three and four um, to try to um, push for policy change to make the process a bit easier for people as well. So can this approach be used elsewhere in the world? Yeah, we, we operate in many countries around the world, conflict um, or post-conflict countries or countries hosting refugees. They all have their different rules and procedures. Some have very easy and straightforward procedures. Some have extremely complicated procedures. So it's a question of sort of knowing what the local rules and what the local entitlements are and just, you know, um, working out the best way to get from A to B, basically, to advise refugees or displaced persons and to, to help them if they can't um, do it themselves and to, um, yeah, work with the authorities on, on making the process easier and, and simpler, which is, in, as I said, in everybody's interests, really. The approach certainly worked for Khaloud and her family and has helped take away some of the uncertainties faced as a refugee forced to flee the devastation of the war in Syria. When the NRC supported me, says Khaloud, I was able to get proof of my marriage and register my children. God bless them. I thank you a lot. Khaloud Daoud Aga, who fled the war in Syria in 2013 and is now living in Lebanon with her husband and four children. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the legal counselling and assistance approach is also being used in Malaysia. It's worth noting that Malaysian law with regard to nationality and legal identification is complex and full of rules and timelines. Malini Ramalo is from the organisation Development of Human Resources for Rural Areas in Malaysia, known as TRAW. 
I first asked her about the scale of the problem of childhood statelessness in her country. We do not have uh, concrete numbers on um, childhood statelessness, but what we have is um, DRAW has conducted a mapping and registration um, project which identified about 12,000 over stateless persons in West Malaysia. Um, Part of the project was mainly for the Indian community, but eventually um, we had to include many other uh, stateless children who were stateless um, in West Malaysia. And um, that is just an approximate um, in West Malaysia, and the numbers could go way higher in if it's inclusive of East Malaysia. And, and what are you doing to try and tackle this? We um, employ a um, community-based paralegal model that would go down to the grassroots, identify them, speak to them, help them to collate documents, prepare them for interviews, and um, ensuring that they are equipped with knowledge to ensure that there is no documentation problem for the following generation. So um, with that, we're able to identify certain patterns of uh, discrimination if it exists or if there is any gaps in the procedures that is practiced by the government. So we take account all of those uh, by recording them into an amazing database that um, has a lot of uh, indicators for us to monitor what's going on over the years. We also have um, strategic litigation and you know ensuring that um, cases um, that cannot be resolved at uh, National Registration Department are actually brought to the court. And um, Malaysia, again, is uh, one of those amazing countries with loads of safeguards on statelessness, but unfortunately, they are not implemented. So um, we have been testing around those areas. And uh, lastly, advocacy has been our um, major um, concern as as well as focus, um, ensuring that people have the right knowledge that these people are not foreigners, but they are people who rightly should belong to the country and they are stateless. A part of um, these issues, I think uh, the greater challenge that we have is the gender discriminative law that Malaysia practices um, that does not allow, um, the, the great reliance is made on um, legal registration of marriage, um, which means that if there is no legal marriage, if the child is born in Malaysia to a Malaysian woman, she's completely fine. She could get citizenship not knowing who the father is, but a Malaysian father could not do the same. And it's completely opposite overseas if the same parent is there. So we usually use this term that um, mothers have the power in the country and fathers have power outside of the country. And um, so there are amazing safeguards even for this because the law says that within a year of the birth and the child has not gotten any other citizenship, she or he may have access to citizenship. And, but this is not implemented. So we've got fantastic safeguards. It's just time about implementing it, ensuring that you know these um, children are included. So your, your focus is really on the awareness raising and, and sort of education, but also helping people go through those procedures to get to where they need to be, is that correct? Uh, well, I would say our, our work started with um, actually knowing where the problem is, and we still continue doing that because I think um, it is a continuous process. When we come up with certain ways to exclude people, it comes with another set of problems. So our DRA's job is really to ensure that um, you know the processes employed by the government does not exclude anyone. Malini Romalo there from the Organisation Development of Human Resources for Rural Areas in Malaysia.
Earlier we heard from Martin Klutterbuck, who is the regional advisor for the legal aid program for the Norwegian Refugee Council in the Middle East. Special thanks go to Martin's colleague Rasha Aldawi for making the recordings with Kolud. If you want to learn more about childhood statelessness and how you can help eradicate it, please visit our website, institutesi.org, where you can find a variety of resources on the issue, including a technical guide on childhood statelessness and the child's right to a nationality. This unpacks the challenges in more detail and provides information on relevant international standards and good practices. And coming up in the series, we'll be wrapping up lessons learned from the country case studies and talking with Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion co-director Laura van Vaas on where to next in the fight against childhood statelessness. We'd love to get as much feedback on the series as possible, so please spread the word and share the What Works Best for Children's Nationality podcast on social media using our hashtags, hashtag nationality for children or hashtag for inclusive societies. And don't forget to include our Twitter handle at institute underscore SI. And from me, Andy Clark, on behalf of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.